This week we're continuing our teaching series on define. Last week we began the series talking about the word deep. And if you weren't here, I want to encourage you to go back and go to our website and listen to that message on the word deep. I think you might be surprised by, by what you hear and, and how it's explained on there. This week, we're continuing our teaching series, and you might be asking the question, why, why are we even talking about individual words? And the reason is because words have meaning. There we go. Words and meanings matter. And we all know that they matter. Trust me. All of us know how to encourage someone. And in our darker moments, we all know how to discourage someone. And, and being a parent, I've done both. As being a friend, I've done both. And I think you'll find yourself in similar shoes. That's why the writers of the New Testament were so careful about telling us to be careful with your words. Paul wrote to Timothy, a young pastor in the church of Ephesus, and, and it must have been a correspondence that Timothy had said, hey, I'm having some challenges, I'm having some struggles, and Paul wrote back to him some instructions because he was his mentor. In 2 Timothy 2.14, we catch a little glimpse of some of the challenges that Timothy was having, and it had to do with words. So 2 Timothy 2.14 says this, Remind everyone about these things. Okay, what, what things? We're not sure. But And command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. So it sounds like they were having some debate, discussion, discord over certain words and their meanings, and Paul says, cut it out. Such arguments are useless, and they can ruin those who hear them. He says that you've got to stop the fighting. You've got to stop the bickering. You've got to stop these conversations that are really unproductive. James, the brother of Jesus, writes something to the early Jewish community warning them about their words. It's found in James chapter 1, verse 19. He says, Understand this, dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Have you ever messed up that order? I have. I've been slow to listen, quick to get angry, and then quicker to speak. And every time I do that, every time I do that, someone gets hurt. And if you do it with your kids, you'll see them wilt in front of you. And it doesn't matter what age they are, whether they're five or they're 25. If we're not careful with our words, we can do great damage. Because words matter. Meanings matter. And words have power. That's why we're looking at these three words over the three weeks. And last week, we looked at the word deep. I'm going to give you a quick 30-second synopsis, but I want to encourage you, go back, listen to the entire message so you get it all in context, but here's, here's the highlight that we talked about last week that, that Doug Mather spoke on, that deep, when we talk about deep, it's a deep understanding of trusting God. And deep happens 
when I trust God and I don't know where it will take me. That's when deep happens. And it starts with Jesus' encouragement. Jesus' challenge. Come follow me. If you want to become deep, it starts there. This week we're looking at the word faith. Most of us have an idea and an understanding of faith. We're going to dig into it today, and my hope is that it will maybe change what you think faith looks like. But before we begin, I'd like to pray. God, our hope, our desire is that when we come here, you will encourage us, you will remind us, and at times, you will correct us. God, we pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to you today. That we would hear your voice, not my voice. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So we're going to look at the word faith. And, and let me start by giving you some of the uses of the word faith. How, how it's used just kind of in casual conversations or by different people. And, and one of the ways you might hear it said is, you just need to have faith in yourself. You can do it, kind of a self-help mini course of if you just have faith, you can do it. You know when we sometimes hear somebody say, I got this? They don't got it usually. But what they're trying to do is encourage themselves to believe and have some faith. You just need to believe in yourself. That's what it means by, well, just have faith. If you just have enough faith, it's all going to be okay. You know, this self-help mentality. And, and if you're old like me, and you start thinking about this, you got to have faith, there might be a song or some lyrics that come to your mind that sounds something like this. And everybody under 35 goes, what was that? <laughs> that was unfortunately George Michael from Wham! Yeah. And, and 1987, which, which the band behind me went, I never heard it, Doug. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you were blessed. Let's be honest. All right? But it's that form of positive thinking that, that form of just, I can do it, it's encouragement. All I got to do is believe in myself. Let me give you another way it's used. When someone walks up to me and they find out I'm a pastor, they go, hey, what faith are you? <laughs> they're really not asking me, do I have faith? You know what they're asking me. They want me to define myself. I am Catholic or Lutheran or Baptist or... You know, if you're not of the Christian faith, you're Jewish or Buddhist or Muslim or atheist. What they're really trying to figure out is not, do I have faith? They want to know, what is my doctrine? What is my religion? That's what they're really asking. Hey, what faith are you? Hey, what religion? What flavor are you in religion? Be nice. Okay. You know, 
It's the correct teaching. That's what you're being asked. Hey, do you have the correct teaching? And trust me, doctrine matters. All right, Crosswinds has doctrine. We have a statement of faith like almost every church. And if you go and read through our materials, you'll find out what we believe in. But faith gets reduced to knowledge. It becomes what kind of information do you have? And more importantly, do I have intellectual assent to your faith? Will I agree with you? Are we on the same page? Well, what are we on the same page about? Well, some of the obvious ones. Well, what is your faith about baptism? Well, what is your faith about the Lord's Supper? Well, what is your faith about which night of the week you should worship on it? And the list goes on and on and on and on. But what they're trying to find out is, what is your core, not faith, but beliefs, and can I agree with them? Can I go along with them? But we all have moments where we believe in something intellectually, although we may not have ever experienced it, seen it, or done it. Let me give you some for me. Right? I believe in gravity. I can't explain it. I can't show it to you, but I'm kind of grateful we got it. I believe the world is round, but I've never gone around the world. I've never gone out in space and seen it, but I, I believe it's round. I believe that the Great Wall of China exists. I haven't been there. I've seen pictures, and yeah, they could be photoshopped, I guess, but, but I believe in these things intellectually. But I haven't experienced going around the world. I haven't experienced going to the Great Wall. And yeah, I experienced gravity only because I haven't fallen off the planet. But there's nothing I really do about that. What I want to get to today is a biblical definition of faith. And the beauty of it is, I don't have to create it. We find the definition in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. Just, just think about that sentence. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. And remember, this is in reference to God. Almost like gravity. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. So just some of the key words in this. Confidence. Translate that to trust. Right? Faith lets me trust. Trust what? That what Jesus said is really true. It gives us hope what we hope for, what Jesus taught. And remember, this is in, in complete context of Jesus, that what Jesus taught will come to fruition. Hey, I am going to prepare a place for you. I will return. I will be with you always. And it gives us an assurance. I don't know about you, but those words bring comfort. Those words bring peace. That's the kind of faith I want to have, that I have assurance, that I have confidence, and that I have hope. But the key is, what is my faith placed in? 
And for me, it's Jesus. Now, my daughter is a math teacher in middle school. I know. It's just, in my mind, is the worst place on earth. <laughs> and I work with middle school kids always, but middle school math just sounds like prison. And she loves it. She's found her niche. And it's an urban school, I'll tell you that. I mean, giving you some context, they made her the coach of the tennis team last fall. My daughter's never played tennis. <laughs> she calls me and she goes, Dad, I'm going to be a coach just like you. And I said, of what? Tennis? I said, oh, they're doomed. And then she goes, it's okay, though. I'm calling Keith, which is my other son, because he played tennis. He's going to help me. Oh, yeah. That's going to go really well. After her first day, she went out to the tennis course. She goes, Dad, I think we've got issues. I said, why? Well, there's no lines and there's no net. Now, just think about that for a moment. So they put a piece of string, tied it to two sticks next to the tennis court, and they practiced. They never had a single home game because they had no nets, so they bust everywhere. And it was middle school girls. Then in the spring, the AD says, hey, I think you like coaching, right? Yeah. You want to do it again? And she goes, yeah. Great. It starts in two weeks. No, we're in the fall. No, middle school boys. That's when you know she must love middle schoolers. Because when you're with middle school boys, their subject range is very narrow. And I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's very narrow. Okay? If it's not laughing and farting, that's kind of the end of it, right? But she loves teaching middle schoolers. My point to this is she has found all kinds of creative ways to encourage her kids to understand and begin to love math. And she's come up with games, and she's had dance parties with music to help them understand math. And she's come up with all these crazy equations that would help simplify math for them. Today what I'd like to do is give you a math equation that I hope will simplify faith. I'm going to give you away the whole message on the front end. So hopefully on the back end you'll go, oh, that was easy. But here it is. Faith equals knowledge plus action plus love. Not real complicated. Faith equals knowledge plus action plus love. So my hope is to give you two people that the Bible and God hold up as people of great faith. One of them if you've grown up in the church, you're going to recognize the name. You're going to go, oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. The other one may be more obscure. And yet both of these people were proclaimed as people of great faith. But it starts with faith equals knowledge. So the first person I want us to look at is Abraham. And, and we find him as a great man of faith in Hebrews, where we just defined faith, chapter 11, verse 1. Then it comes back to, and Abraham was a great example of that faith. And we pick up in Hebrews chapter 11 here. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his 
inheritance. So here's my question for you. What did Abraham know about God? When we pick up this text, what did he know about God? Well, let me tell you what he didn't know. He didn't know the Old Testament. It hadn't been written. He didn't know the New Testament because it hadn't been written. He didn't know Jesus because he hadn't been born. As a matter of fact, Abraham didn't know any doctrine. He didn't have all the right teaching. Here's what I think Abraham knew. He knew he had encountered God. That's it. He knew he'd encountered God. And I don't know what it looks like. Unfortunately, we don't have a whole big explanation of it. It wasn't like when Moses saw the burning bush. It was just God came God spoke to him and said, I want you to go. But in that moment, he goes, this is the one true God. And that's important to understand because Abram lived in a land of pagans. He grew up in what is known today as modern-day Iraq. It was a pagan culture. They worshipped anything and everything. But when he encountered God, he knew it was God. Now, here's the Genesis text that Hebrews is referring to. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you in a great nation. And here's what he promises. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. That's a pretty amazing statement. First encounter with God, and I want you to go to a land you've never been to, and just follow me. Follow me. You don't need to know everything. Just follow me. Out of that encounter, out of that experience, there's faith, the knowledge is, I've met God, and there's action. He moves his whole family. He moves to a land he has no idea what he's getting into. He doesn't know if he's going to have to fight for his life. He doesn't know if it's going to be a, a land where they can have crops. He doesn't know anything about it. But he says, I'll go. So here's a map for the journey, and, and it actually starts with his father, Terah, down in in that time, Babylonia. And if you look at the top of the map, it says Haran at the top. And, and that's where his dad had taken their family to, and they stopped right there. And they found the land was great. It could produce. Their crops would be great. Their flocks would grow. And Abram's dad set up shop. And he passed away. And then... Abram encounters God. And he says, I want you to go down to Canaan. Complete this journey. And he goes. But it was 
a giant step of faith. I want to show you a picture. That's a picture of me hanging on for dear life to a trapeze bar. That happened a couple years ago when we took our, our high school and middle school students out to Camp Victory, and we had them do a high ropes course. And I was very content watching them do the high ropes course. And then one of them got smart and said, oh, Doug, you should do this too. <laughs> yeah, that's really what I need to be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm hanging on for dear life to that trapeze bar. What you don't see is what happened right before that. That I was standing on a perfectly nice perch. <laughs> and I was happy and content. But that wasn't the goal. The goal was to jump out and leap out and grab on to the trapeze bar. And I want to ask you this question. In what did I put my faith at that moment? Absolutely not. Not my abilities. Uh -uh. (laughs) Nope. I was hoping I could reach the bar. I was hoping I could hold on to the bar. But the truth is, I put my faith in the person you couldn't see, the belayer. Because I was in a nice harness and a rope, and he was on the ground, and he was supposed to make sure I didn't splat on the ground next to him. My faith wasn't in my ability. My faith wasn't in could I reach the trapeze bar. And I'll tell you the truth. Once I grabbed it, my faith in my belayer really did quiver and I didn't want to let go. I figured I will hold on to the bar as long as I possibly can. And everyone's saying, let go, just let go, let go. No, no. That's just stupid. (laughs) But at some point, my strength gives out. Your strength's going to give out. And you're going to let go. And the question is, what have you put your faith in? See, my hope is God is our belayer. That we get excited about opportunities. We get excited about taking a leap or a step or an action. But the truth is we're putting our faith in a God we've encountered but we have not seen. Let me take you to Matthew, the other person that that is considered a, a person of great faith that you won't expect. It's in Matthew chapter 8. It's Jesus' encounter. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, A Roman soldier, Roman officer came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed. He's paralyzed and in terrible pain. Jesus said, I will come and I'll heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. Now think for a moment what he's saying. That would just be too much to ask of you. You're too important to do that. I'm not worthy of that kind of favor. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I know this because I'm under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. 
I only need to say go, and they go, and come, and they will come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. In other words, Jesus, all you got to do is, is say my, my, my servant's going to be healed, and, and I know it will be true. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. Now, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. A Roman pagan man who does not know God has great faith. So what did he know? What did the Roman soldier actually know? Well, most likely he didn't know the Old Testament. He wouldn't have read it. He wouldn't have studied it. He wouldn't have known the laws, the Torah, the right way to honor God or worship or follow God. He didn't know the right doctrine. Trust me. Being a Roman, he probably worshipped anything and everything. So what did he know? He only knew one thing, very similar to Abraham. He knew about Jesus. Somewhere along the way, he'd either heard stories about, hey, there's this man. He's doing amazing things. He is healing people. And he's claiming to be God. Or he actually might have been nearby when Jesus was teaching. Or he might have seen Jesus actually heal someone. We really don't know. We don't know what created his faith. But he put his faith in Jesus with the amount of knowledge he had which wasn't much. And that was enough. That was enough. And his servant was healed when he returned home. The Roman soldier trusted that Jesus had the power to heal his servant, and he didn't even have to show up. He could just do it. You know what would be really fun is if somewhere later in one of the Gospels you'd hear this kind of like, and the rest of the story. Hey, and the Roman centurion becomes one of the great believers in Jesus, you know, and converts his legion. We don't get that. We, we don't have a clue to what happens next. But Jesus makes this statement about him and says, he is a man of great faith. And right after that, he then gives a warning to all of his Jewish countrymen, to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, all the people that were supposed to be religious, all the people that were supposed to have great faith, he says this warning. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles, that's the Roman soldier, that's us, will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. Hey, this centurion's faith is a lot like Abraham's faith. But, there's a huge but, but many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's trying to tell them that, you know what, you may think you have faith, 
but it's not placed in the right thing. You may think that faith is about religion. It's about doctrine. It's not. It's about an encounter with God. It's about an encounter with Jesus. And again, think about the centurion soldier. His faith was a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of knowledge. And the action was he went and found him and asked him, would you heal my servant? Now I want to flip back to Abraham again. This is later in Abraham's life. He's moved to the land of Canaan. His flocks have prospered. His crops have flourished. He's finally had a child that all the nations are going to be blessed by. His name is Isaac. And we pick up the story and narrative between God and Abram again. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. He says, Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac. That should be pretty obvious if you've only got one. Yeah, Isaac, that guy. Whom you love so much and go to the land of Moriah. Okay, Moriah is actually where the temple was built in Jerusalem. Mount Moriah. Go there and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will show you. So at that time, he was living in Beersheba, down there to the south. It was about a three-day trip, 54 miles. Most historians and, and people that kind of do this date and stuff, and well, how far could you walk in a day and all that during the life of, of the Old Testament, New Testament, said easily you could walk between 20 to 25 miles in a day. So 54 miles is really nothing, Right? If you're clocking out 25 miles a day, that's 50. The next day, man, it's an easy walk, right? Should be simple to get there. Yet in the Genesis text, we read this. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Man, on the third day, They should have been practically there. Now, I don't know why that gets pointed out. Here's my take and what I'm thinking, and I may be way wrong, so just just give me some grace here. I think Abraham was dragging his feet. I think Abraham took his own sweet time getting to Moriah. Now hear me. He had faith, and he was obeying, but I don't think he was in any big rush to get there. And I say that because that's, that's me. There are times when I, my faith tells me what I'm supposed to do next, and I drag my feet. Have you ever taken your time following God? Yeah, I know. (sighs) I'm so glad you didn't give me a timeline of when to be there by. And taking my own sweet time getting there. 
So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. Isaac's a pretty smart kid, just let me tell you that. Hey, we have fire and wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? We seem to be missing something, really, 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 really critical to this whole offering thing. God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. You know what the beauty of that is? The teaching moment between Abraham and his son. God, I have faith that you're going to provide. And he's teaching his son to have faith that God's going to provide. You know, so you get this imagery of this poor boy carrying this bundle, you know, and, and his dad's with him, you know, and they're walking together. And what was Abraham, what was going on in his head? God would never ask me to do this. This is, this is crazy, crazy talk. And yet, he kept walking. In Hebrews, I had never caught this before. Hebrews gives us a glimpse into Abraham's mind. Because here's what we read. Because in Hebrews 11, it talks about, and he was willing to sacrifice his son. And he, we read this. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom the descendants will be counted. It doesn't make sense. But now here's his rationale. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. I've read that text over and over. And this week I, I caught it. That Abraham believed, yep, even if I do sacrifice my son, I have faith that God can raise him from the dead. That is not a logical conclusion. No one has been raised from the dead. Lazarus is in the New Testament. He gets raised from the dead by Jesus. Yeah, but that is thousands of years off. Jesus dies and is risen from the dead. Yep, thousands of years off. But he had faith, which led to action. Because it was placed in that encounter he had with God. And that was enough. Now let me give you the last piece. Faith plus knowledge plus action plus love. We don't catch this piece from either encounter of the Roman centurion or Abraham. It actually comes from Paul's teaching to the church in Corinth. They're all concerned about who's most spiritual and who's got the coolest abilities and gifts. And, and he's got to do some correcting. And as he's talking to them, he has to explain to them that their faith, their knowledge, and their actions, their abilities aren't enough. So he pens these words in 1 Corinthians 13. 
If I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I'd be nothing. I'd be nothing. Paul's reminding them that our faith, our faith is shown by our love for God and our love for others. That's what demonstrates our faith. It's our knowledge, our action, but then it's our love that, that shows people. Go back to that centurion. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed paralyzed and in terrible pain. Why did he come to Jesus? And the answer isn't because he believed he could heal him in this case. I mean, that's part of it. But here's what I also think. The Roman officer loved his servant. I mean, think about it. He's in a man of power and position. He could have lots of servants. This servant was replaceable. He could go buy another one. He could go take another one. He could just choose someone to be a servant, and they would have to do it. So, hey, if this guy dies, if this guy's paralyzed, I can just kind of throw him away and start over. But I think it's because he loved him. He, he wanted the best for this servant. So his faith was based on knowledge. It was based on action. But it was also a step of love. That's what God wants for us that our knowledge is based in whatever encounter we've had with Jesus to this point, which leads us to actions that are demonstrated by love. So quick reminder, last week deep, a thirst for God. A thirst for God and a willingness to say, I don't know where we're going, but I'm holding on to you. It's a response to Jesus saying, come follow me and us taking that step. And faith is trusting God. It's really simple. It's not all the right teaching. It's not all the right doctrine. It's trusting God. So the question for us is now what? Now what do I do with this? And let me, let me give you some of the possibilities. For some of us, it is to come follow me. That question Jesus said, do you want to come follow me? It's the question to Abraham. Abraham, I want you to go. Will you go? For some of us in the room, it may be that first step. I am going to follow Jesus. I am going to put my faith in Jesus for the very first time. I don't have a lot of knowledge. I got a little bit. But I'm going to take that step of faith. For some of us, it's starting to act on the knowledge we have. It's I've been dragging my feet but I know I need to do this. I know what God wants. I, I feel it in my heart. I feel it in my soul. I know it in my mind. <sighs> but I'm dragging my feet. And for others of us, it's starting to act in love towards others. That we would start showing that love that God desires for us to do. 
It may be somebody on your street. It may be a coworker. There, trust me, there's people in our lives that we, we struggle loving because we're human. But that's God's desire. Let's pray. God, we want to be people of faith. People who've had an encounter with you. People who have had an encounter with you and you've turned our life upside down. And we're doing things that don't seem reasonable and others think are crazy. And yet we know they're right. God, let us show our love, show our faith to others. That it would be so attractive, so winsome, that people would want to have their own encounter with you. That's our prayer, that's our hope. In Christ's name we pray, amen.